In this episode, I wanted to continue the conversation on learning. In my last episode, I talked about why learning is so important to me personally. In this episode, I want to move on to talking about organisational learning. Welcome to the Better ROI from Software Development Podcast. A podcast aimed at those that fund software development and those that work with them. In a series of short, weekly podcasts, I, your host Mark Taylor, hope to educate and inform on why traditional management processes won't get you the best return on your investment. And along the way, I provide advice on how to improve that. Wikipedia describes organisational learning as, begin quote, Organisational learning is a process of creating, retaining and transferring knowledge within an organisation. An organisation improves over time as it gains experience. From this experience, it is able to create knowledge. This knowledge is broad, covering any topic that could better an organisation. End quote. And this comes back to one of my core beliefs. I believe every business is a technology business. For a business to thrive in the modern world, it must be able to adapt and change rapidly. And that ability for a business to adapt and change quickly comes down to how well the organisation learns. Traditionally, we've considered organisations as machines. We've built out processes and workflows that we would expect to be carried out mechanically, day in, day out. We've held the belief that because it is mechanical, it is understandable. And thus, predictable. With known inputs, we can predict known outputs. I personally question if it has ever really been true, or have we done a fine old job of convincing ourselves that it is true. We see recognisable patterns and thus we assume we must understand it. More and more I'm seeing people thinking of organisations as living organisms. And this seems a better fit to me. With a living organism, we can no longer predict the outputs for a given input. It's simply too complicated to predict with any level of accuracy. Maybe we could use statistical modelling and make an educated guess, but ultimately we can't have utter confidence in the predicted outcome. We can, however, observe the outcome. By observing the outcome, we actually have concrete evidence of the effect, rather than a lot of guessing. And if we are attempting to achieve a particular aim, then we have a better idea if we're heading towards it or away from it. I've found that in many organisations, learning is actually seen in quite negative terms. There is an inbuilt assumption that everything should be right first time. Anything that didn't work first time, by definition, is a failure. This is an inbuilt assumption that people should know how to do their job. We are paying them to perform not to learn on the job. The organisation puts a failure to learn on the individual. And as discussed in last week's episode, for an individual to express a desire to learn can be seen as a weakness. That they don't have the skills the organisation needs, the skills the organisation are paying for. Thus, often the organisation will blame the individual rather than taking responsibility for its own ability to learn. Many of my episodes keep coming back to the same subject, change. I've talked repeatedly that change is constant. It will constantly be affecting our organisations. 
And while I've largely talked about it in terms of technology, and especially in terms of software development, that changes everywhere in an organisation. Very little, if anything, remains static in this modern world. Yes, I don't doubt there are businesses out there that have done the same thing year in, year out, for decades, repeating the same mechanical steps that made them successful maybe 30, 40 or 50 years ago. But how many of them still retain their level of success? How many have performed no innovation or adaption in those years and still retain their place at the top of the pile? I'm not aware of any. More likely, they slip away like the Hollywood starlet that hasn't acted for 20 years. They're mentally stuck in the heady days of being the centre of the limelight, the toast of their profession, and while the world has passed them over for the new. And without accepting change, that is where our organisations stay, reminiscing on past glories, rather than accepting and moving with the times. Again, I've talked repeatedly about how we can avoid that in software development. I've talked about using the principles that come from agile, lean and DevOps movements, all of which champion learning at their core. But again, it's not just a software development concern. Many of the principles from these software development movements are equally applicable to all areas of an organization. Take, for example, when I've talked about the experimental mindset in the minimum viable product approach. It actively encourages organizations to think in terms of experimentation. Start with a hypothesis, find the quickest way to test that hypothesis, and learn from the results. While I introduced the minimum viable product as a software development approach, I've also talked about it being used for the improvement of the recruitment process. And that ability to test new ideas and respond based on the results is a powerful tool for all levels of the organization. As I've said, the software development movement of Agile, Lean and DevOps all have learning baked into their core. This is to allow our software development practices to improve over time. In many cases, we will find the focus of those practices is not on getting work done faster or delivering a specific piece of work. No, the focus of those practices are to improve how the software development team works, improving the capabilities and abilities of the team rather than focusing on the progress of a specific project. Take, for example, the retrospective practice from Agile. The retrospective is a regular meeting of the team, happening every week or fortnight. I've even known some teams to do them daily. The aim of that meeting is for the team to look back at the work since the last meeting, to discuss what has gone well and what hasn't. The meeting is a peer-led conversation within the team, with open and frank conversation touching on any subject that the team feel appropriate. By the end of the meeting, the team should have identified improvements that they will experiment with going forwards. Again, using a minimum viable approach of start with a hypothesis, find the quickest way to test that hypothesis, and learn from the results. Thus, each retrospective meeting becomes part of a continual learning exercise for the software development team. The retrospective is not a status meeting. It is not a meeting to establish how a specific project or task is progressing. It is about the team working together to learn to be better at what they do. It is an investment in improving the team. Unfortunately, I've known teams to forgo the regular retrospective in favour of getting the job done. 
I've always found this short-sighted. The focus on the immediate project in hand, rather than the long-term benefits gained from the team improvements. Yes, you may have delivered that project a day earlier, but think about the negative impacts on all of the future work that the team will carry out. The retrospective improvements are like compound interest. Individual improvements on their own may seem almost inconsequential. Over time, however, the compound interest pays real dividends. Think how much a Formula One racing team will rehearse and refine their pit stop actions. They will continue to refine and refine, making only milliseconds change at any given point. But over time, those milliseconds add up. The sum of those milliseconds can make the difference between winning and losing the race. I now find retrospectives being used in non-software development teams, which makes a lot of sense to me. It's a means of helping a team improve how it works, a means for a team to introspect and, as a group, attempt to achieve mastery over their given activities. As I've previously mentioned, the book Drive by Daniel Pink classes mastery as one of the primary sources of self-motivation. Another practice I want to discuss is the blameless post-mortem. A blameless post-mortem is a meeting generally carried out after some failure. Say, for example, your website goes down for two hours, or all payment processing fails, or there is a security breach. The aim of the meeting is to understand the true cause of the problem and arrive at improvements that the organisation can take to avoid it happening again. The blameless part of this meeting is critical. Too often a failure becomes a witch hunt. We identify the individual at fault and we make an example of them. We believe that by disciplining or even firing the individual, we will stop it happening again. We hold the individual up as an example of what happens when people mess up. And of course, this has entirely the wrong consequences. Firstly, any investigation of the failure degenerates into an exercise in finger-pointing, especially if it involves multiple teams or functions. Nobody wants to be at fault, so everybody tries to push the blame off onto someone else. Before too long, any investigation has broken down into blame-shifting, finger-pointing and political backstabbing. Not at all useful when trying to understand why the problem occurred in the first place. Secondly, it scares people into being very risk-adverse. In a blame culture, individuals and teams will become very careful about what they do and how they are perceived for risk of being blamed for something. This quickly leads to a culture of crippling bureaucracy. Nothing is ever done without hundreds of sign-offs and approvals. Everything staggers to a halt. And thirdly, we have probably just fired the one person that may have actually learned from the incident. A quote from Albert Einstein. Begin quote. A person who has never made a mistake never tried anything new. End quote. So, with the blameless postmortem, the emphasis is in actually understanding what happened without assigning blame. Atlassian, a software company, describe a blameless postmortem as, begin quote, brings teams together to take a deeper look at an incident and figure out what happened, why it happened, and how the team responded, and what can be done to prevent repeat incidents and improve future responses. 
Blameless postmortems do this without any blame game. In a blameless postmortem, it is assumed that every team and employee acted with the best of intentions based on the information they had at the time. Instead of identifying and punishing whoever screwed up, blameless postmortems focus on improving performance moving forwards. End quote. By doing this, you're encouraging individuals and teams to work together to really understand the problem, rather than focusing effort on blame shifting, finger pointing and that political backstabbing. It reduces the aversion to risk and continual growth of smothering bureaucracy, and it comes out with the entire organisation learning from the experience. This is another example of learning being front and centre. It is in the best interest of the organisation to learn from the episode, rather than find someone to blame. And, as I talked about in episode 11, this really does require a culture change from the top. The top has to instil the learning culture at the heart of the organisation. It has to ensure that it acts in a way that is consistent with that message. It has to ensure that all vestiges of a blame culture are rooted out and removed. It is not enough to tell the organisation it has to learn, and then to blame individuals when they don't. And in the next episode, I'll talk about how we can help individuals learn. I wanted to end this episode with a quote from the Agile Manifesto that I introduced in episode 8. Begin quote. We are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do it. End quote. The creators of the manifesto, experts in their field, highlighted that they are still learning and will continue to do so. This speaks to the maturity and continual learning within software development that is uncommon in business today. Something I hope we can all learn from. Thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again next week. This podcast has been hosted by me, Mark Taylor. It has been produced by Red Folder Consultancy Limited, a consultancy that can help you achieve better return on your software development investment. You can contact them or sign up to the mailing list at red-folder.com. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter at redfoldermark. If you're getting value from this series, please tell a friend and help me grow my audience.